Good morning, Hope Chapel. Well, here we are. At least here I am, and there you are. But welcome to Hope at Home. I'd like to begin this time together by just leading us in um, a few moments of pastoral prayer. So before we dive into God's word this morning, uh, I just want to ask you if you'd be willing to please bow your heads um, as I lead us just in a, a brief moment of prayer. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we, your people, come before you now. We petition you for mercy and for grace in the midst of the crisis that our culture, that our world is facing. We acknowledge that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are in control. Lord, I pray, we pray that um, this morning we as your people, as we're gathered virtually, would honor you appropriately in our hearts, that your word would go forth um, from this time, um, Lord, over this stream, and that as your word goes forth, that it would accomplish your intended purpose in the hearts of your people, Lord, and also in the hearts of those who might be tuned in and who don't yet know you. We pray that the unique hope that we as your people, as Christians, have through the work of your Son would be showcased in our time. We pray that your glory would be uh, would be showcased. We pray that the name of your Son, Jesus, would be lifted high. Lord, I pray as a local pastor here in the South Bay and as one of the pastors here at Hope Chapel in, in this family, that you would cause all your churches in our area to rise up. Lord, that we would be united in heart and spirit. Lord, I pray not only for Hope Chapel, I pray also for Journey of Faith, for Rolling Hills Covenant, for Kings Harbor, for Delray Church, for Redeemed South Bay, uh, for Jesus Center Torrance, for Journey South Bay, for all the churches in our area, Lord, for all the pastors and all the uh, family members, Lord, in your body here in the South Bay, Lord, I pray that we'd be united in this moment of crisis, that we would rise to the occasion and minister to those who are in need, that our community would take note, Lord, of uh, your goodness as displayed through your people. We pray that as a community of local churches, we would bring fame to your name. That as our community, as the world looks to us and looks at our example, looks at our response to the moment that we are facing as not just a South Bay community, but as a global community, Lord, they would see your grace, that they would um, have a tangible sense of your goodness um, and, and that we would represent you well, Lord. I pray that we would um, be present for those who are sick, for those who are in need, for those who are hurting, for those who are fearful. Lord, we pray as we humble ourselves before you this morning that you would work powerfully through us, um, frail and weak as we are, Lord, as your vessels. We submit this time to you. We ask that you would work in and through our midst. Lord, I pray that you would empower the proclamation of your word this morning. We pray, pray these things in the 
mighty, majestic, holy, unparalleled, precious name that is above all names, the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Well, Hope Chapel, uh, I want to begin um, by wishing my wife a very happy birthday because today is my wife Jack, my wife Jackie's birthday. And I'm here live streaming to you and she's at home watching with the kids and Jackie, um, I just want you to know how much I love you, how much our church family loves you. You are a gift not only to me and to our kids, but to our community. And we just want to thank you for uh, your love and support and celebrate your life with you. Okay. Well, I want to take just a moment as we begin, and I want to acknowledge the obvious. We are in the midst of strange and uncertain times. Uh, so strange, in fact, that at least for the foreseeable future, we will be meeting like this. And uh, in light of that, I want to acknowledge all of our staff members and tech team volunteers uh, that have served overtime this week to make this live stream happen. I especially want to thank Mark Jacobs and Andrew Kramer, who uh, have invested a great deal of their time and energy, even equipment. Uh, I am tremendously thankful to serve amongst such a faith-filled and faithful church family. And I'm also thankful, I think we should be thankful for the common grace of technology that God has made available to us to stick together and be united, uh, at least technologically, as a church family in this season. <clears throat> now, I do have uh, just a little confession here at the outset. Uh, if I'm honest, this feels a little bit strange for me. Uh, here's what I mean. When we meet together corporately, when you are all um, at the church and I'm in front of you preaching, uh, no matter how many people in the room, I really don't feel nervous um, when I'm in front of you. But speaking into a camera right now, even though I know that all of you who I know and love and miss are on the other end, it just doesn't quite feel the same. Um, and so I just want to ask for your grace and prayers as I kind of uh, nervously work through this experiment with you um, and as we work through it together. Amen? Okay. Uh, so why are we live streaming from our homes and offices? Uh, <clears throat> as I said, this is an experiment. We appreciate your grace. Um, I want to say that this live stream experience probably won't be perfect. We'll be dialing things in more and more uh, week to week. Uh, and I want to acknowledge that this live stream might not have the highest production quality. Um, we could have probably achieved much higher production quality if we pre-recorded Alan's worship and pre-recorded my message. But I want to say this, our highest priority uh, during this time is for these gatherings to be just that, for them to be gatherings. And so I don't want you to watch a perfectly produced pre-recording of me. And neither does Alan or Will Justin or uh, Andrew or Zach uh, when they're behind the camera. I want you to know that while you are there, I am here. I want you to know that I'm with you in real time. We want you to know that we're with you. And the reason for that is, Church Hope Chapel, we love you. We love you very much. And for those of you who have been part of this family for a little while or for a long time, you know that Hope Chapel is not an institution. It is a family. So this morning, we're going to have family time. Amen? We, as your leaders, want to do everything in our power during this family time to care for you, to serve you, to love you, and to lead you. And we want to do that all the while 
being dutifully submitted in good conscience and in good spirit to our governing authorities, as Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 13. Now, we want to preserve our witness to the surrounding community um, and to the world that is watching us, not just us here at Hope Chapel as a local church, um, but the church. And we want to love our neighbors. We want to love our neighbors through practicing responsible social distancing. We want to love our neighbors by contributing to the effort to flatten the curve of this spreading coronavirus. Um, and we want to love our neighbors by, by prioritizing not just the welfare of one another in this church family, um, but prioritizing the welfare of each other in our broader South Bay um, and even statewide, nationwide, and global communities. As your pastors, we share a strong conviction that this cultural moment presents one of the most profound opportunities in our lifetime to showcase the gospel through how we relate to our governing authorities, through how we relate to the community around us, and through how we live and love sacrificially for one another as a church family. And as I think about uh, that last point, living and loving sacrificially for one another, I can't help but <clears throat> recall uh, Jesus's words at the beginning of his farewell discourse uh, in John's gospel. Now in John's gospel, uh, several chapters are devoted to um, Jesus's parting discourse, his final words of instruction and encouragement and exhortation uh, to his disciples. We see this discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. And in John chapter 13, uh, this farewell discourse uh, of Jesus begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And of course, we know that that act of service foreshadowed his ultimate act of service, which was just ahead of him in that moment. Um, and so Jesus begins by washing his disciples' feet. And then immediately after that, he reveals to his disciples that one of them in their midst will actually betray him. Jesus identifies Judas. John tells us, um, that Satan enters Judas and that Jesus summarily dismisses Judas to go carry out what he had planned. And immediately after these events, the very first thing that Jesus turns and says to his disciples um, in that upper room during the farewell discourse, um, his very first words to them are recorded in John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. I want to read those words to you uh, briefly. So Jesus says this to them. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he says this, church, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we want to move forward in love, not just because it's right, but also and especially because the outside world will know by our love that we are Jesus's disciples, that we are his followers, that we are his people, his bride. Now, you know that we have been working through a series for a number of months now, teaching through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, we're about halfway through that study as a church, but I made a decision this weekend to uh, pivot and depart from our study um, for one, maybe more than one week. Uh, First Corinthians was my original plan all the way up until Thursday. 
But given the escalation of the current situation, uh, given the stay at home order that we are all um, under here in the state of California and in uh, Los Angeles, uh, I just felt pastorally um, very strongly that the Lord was leading me um, to pause First Corinthians just for a moment and speak to this unique moment that we're living through as a church, as a society, and as a global community. And as I was praying and thinking and reading this week, uh, I kept returning to this question. What do people need right now? What do people need in this moment of crisis? What do we need as a church family? What do we need right now in this moment of crisis? Uh, what does the world need? In this moment of crisis. So in our time together this morning, I want to identify and respond um, to two specific points of need. Certainly there, there are more, but these needs are certainly necessary. They are needs. So I want to talk to us about perspective, and I want to talk to us about hope. We need perspective, and we need hope. So first, we need perspective. As we are all no doubt aware, um, our society has come to a grinding halt. We are, for all intents and purposes, confined to our homes, um, only permitted to leave to accommodate our most basic uh, social needs. We know that the stock market has taken um, an utter beating. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of speculation about the stability of uh, the American economy. There's tremendous amount of speculation about the stability and longevity of the global economy. I know that many people, even to this point, have lost their jobs and therefore their only means of income. I know others who own small businesses and are facing the specter of those businesses possibly shutting down and losing their only source of income and years of um, part investment in their labors. But even worse, uh, many of us are concerned about the risk of infection, especially those among us who are vulnerable, those, those among us who are elderly, uh, chronically sick. Uh, as many of you know, my mom has stage four metastatic breast cancer. Uh, we are concerned about her health and exposure. Um, those among us who are immunocompromised in some critical respect. And if, if you've been watching the news like I have and following the reports, that have been coming out of Italy, where the documented death rate among those who've been infected is hovering around a staggering 10%, uh, you can't help but pause and think, oh my, what if that happens to us here? Or what if that happens to my family? What if that happens to me? Now, I could go on and on identifying and enumerating the various concerns and fears that no doubt, most, probably all of us are processing right now. But I want you to hold that thought. I said that we're taking a step away from 1 Corinthians for at least this week, maybe one or two more. Um, but we're just about halfway through that study. And I want to just call us to recollect a pattern that we've seen over and over and over in that letter. So when Paul's writing the Corinthians over and over and over, he will identify an area of sin or dysfunction in that church. And each time um, he will call those Christians to reframe their perspective. 
when they're divided and at odds, Paul calls them back to the basics of the gospel. When they're enamored with philosophy and sophistication, Paul calls them back to the foolishness of the gospel. Where they're engaged in immorality, Paul calls them to a right view of the body corporately as the bride of Christ in the temple of his spirit, but also a right view of their individual bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, having been set apart and made holy again in light of the gospel. Over and over again, we see that before Paul can correct their behavior, he must first correct their beliefs. And the reason for that is right believing always precedes right behavior. So I want to suggest that our behavior as a church family and as individual constituent members of this church family, our behavior in this crisis must be preceded by right believing in this crisis. And so I want to draw our attention this morning to a few biblical themes to help frame our perspective, to frame our belief in this moment. And so the first biblical theme I want to draw our attention to is God's sovereignty. Church, here's the first thing that I want to remind us of. Church, God is sovereign. This present situation, this present darkness has not somehow slipped through his fingers. This virus, though it is an affront and an evil affront to his creation, this virus has not escaped his control. God's providence has not somehow been short-circuited. He is in control. Let me say it again, church. He is in control. As I have been meditating on this truth, on this reality, as I've been leaning into uh, this profound and promising reality, um, I have been personally drawn, especially in the last 24 to 48 hours, uh, <clears throat> to some of the Bible's most beautiful affirmations of God's sovereignty. And I think that those are found in the Psalms. In Psalm 90, we encounter a Psalm of Moses, uh, one of the earliest Psalms written. Uh, and Moses speaking to God, uh, offers these words up in worship, in adoration, and in confession to God. He says in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a walk in the night. In Psalm 24, a messianic psalm which points forward to and prefigures uh, the ultimate Davidic king, Christ himself, King David, who is just a shadow of the one to come, writes these words. In worship, he says in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Church, the, the world and everything in it belongs to the Lord. 
in Psalm 139, uh, David confesses personally to, uh, to the Lord um, his sovereignty and providence over David's own life. David says in Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw me in unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. David confesses in this psalm God's sovereignty and providence over his days, which God has ordained and orchestrated and numbered before the foundations of the earth, before David was even conceived. Now we're in a moment of cultural crisis. We're in the midst of uh, global difficulty. And in these kinds of situations, we're confronted with the reality of, of evil and of suffering and uh, very tangible threats to our lives and our way of lives. And so how do we think about God's sovereignty in such contexts? I think that in moments like this, it's especially helpful for us to acknowledge God's sovereignty over the greatest moment of evil in all of human history. And that was when the one true and innocent one was nailed to a cross and made to be sin for those who had sinned so that as he was made sin, we could become the righteousness of God. We read in, in the book of Acts, Luke recording that after Peter and John had been detained and questioned by the religious authorities and in, in the rulers in Jerusalem, that they were released and all the believers praised God and prayed to God. In Acts 4, 27 through 28, Luke records this. Um, he records the words of these believers praying to God. And they say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, nothing escapes God's control. He is sovereign over everything. He was sovereign even over the death of his own son. Isaiah 53 um, tells us this was the case 700 years before it happened. In Isaiah 53.10, the prophet tells us, yet it was the will of God to crush him, to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Nothing thwarts the will of the Lord. And peace and prosperity and difficulty and discomfort. And so church, we must not lose our perspective. Not only that we worship the one true triune God who is himself the creator and sustainer of all, of everything, the totality of everything that is, we must not lose perspective of the unfathomable greatness of our God, of the incomprehensible power of our God, of the inscrutable wisdom of our God, wisdom that is beyond our own comprehension, our limited, frail humanity. As we navigate these perilous times, we must remember, brothers and sisters, church, we must remember that our God is a great, big God. He is the only great, big God. 
and we can trust him. Our great big confidence in our great big God stands in stark contrast to the spirit of our secularized post-Christian culture that we live in. Um, Perhaps nowhere else is the spirit of our culture more um, succinctly stated and encapsulated um, than in the words of prominent atheist uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins um, has recently written in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, these words. Dawkins says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So many people in our society, in our country, in our global community, our current events, our our current human plight amounts to nothing more than blind physical forces and genetic replication that function with purposeless, pitiless indifference. And I just have to ask, if that is your worldview, what hope do you have in a moment like this? Your only hope is a mathematical probability that you will or won't contract coronavirus. And if you do contract it, your only hope is a mathematical probability that you will or won't recover from it. But church, we have a hope who, not a hope that, a hope who is so much greater than a mathematical probability. And the world will tell us that our great big hope and our great big God is nothing more than fairy tales and wishful thinking, except that it's not. How do we have confidence in our great big hope, in our great big God? I want you to look with me at what the Apostle Peter writes in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. He writes this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls their attention immediately to Jesus. He says, according to his great mercy, the Father's, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and me. Now, in our culture, the word hope often carries this connotation of being just kind of wishful, a blind, a blind hope, a wishful hope, not a hope that's rooted, anchored in any kind of fact or reality or anything tangible or firm or solid. But that's not how the Greek term for hope in this particular set of verses um, is to be translated. Uh, The Greek term for hope in this passage conveys an eager, confident expectation. Uh, The hope of the believer is not only a living hope, but it is is a lively hope. Uh, It could be translated a hope that lives on. Um, Not a fleeting hope, but a persistent hope. 
unlike the empty, vain, dead hope of this world, um, this living hope is it, it is life-giving. It is alive. It is active in our souls as believers. Um, it could be translated, uh, we live with great expectation. And what does our uh, expectation find its foundation in? What is our living hope uh, rooted in? Our living hope is rooted in, it originates from a living, resurrected Savior. Our hope is anchored to a living, resurrected Savior. We have confidence in our hope, in our great big God, because our great big God raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. Jesus was raised. We have four historical sources of testimony to that effect. We know that he appeared to many. We know that those whom he appeared to suffered great persecution, and many, many, many of them died for what they believed in. We know that many people die for what they believe in, but these people were in a position to know the truth or falsity of the claims about Jesus' resurrection. They were in a position as firsthand eyewitnesses to know if what they believed was true or false. Nobody dies for what they know to be false, and yet all these people historically died for what they knew to be true. They died because they knew that Jesus was raised. They knew that he was raised because they saw him crucified, they saw him entombed, and then they saw his tomb empty, and then he appeared to them. He appeared to many. We see this through the testimony of women. These, could, these testimonies couldn't be forgeries because if you wanted to convince somebody in ancient Roman culture, you wouldn't rely on the testimony of women. You would rely on the testimony of men. So this testimony satisfies the historical criterion of embarrassment. We know that there's a resurrection-shaped crater in the historical record. We know that the resurrection has changed inexorably the course of human history. We know spiritually, theologically, that in his death, burial, and resurrection, and especially his resurrection, Jesus secured victory over sin and death. Our great Christian hope is that because he was raised, we will be raised. Nowhere in scripture do we see God's sovereignty and providence more greatly showcased than in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. When we look to Jesus in this present moment of uncertainty, we are reminded that all of human history is headed towards a divinely appointed telos, to a divinely appointed end. Uh, the Bible conveys to us God's unfolding plan of redemption, which runs from creation to new creation. And the events of history are not randomly occurring in blind, pitiless indifference, but rather have been providentially orchestrated with divine purpose and direction. Now, this leads me to a second biblical theme that I want to mention that I think that we need to be aware of. And that biblical theme is the Bible's honesty about the inevitability of suffering and trials uh, on this side of new creation in this life. And I know what some of you are thinking as I'm speaking to you. I know that some of you, some of us are concerned that it may in fact be part of God's plan for us in this moment and in these narrowly defined circumstances to experience suffering and trials. The Bible is clear about the inevitability of suffering and trials. We will experience them. 
Some of us might even experience them in this public health crisis. I just want to offer you a couple of brief thoughts. We could spend weeks unpacking this reality and responding, uh, discussing how the Bible responds to it. But when it comes to suffering and trials, uh, the Bible is clear that God is always working redemptively through suffering and trials for his people, and that we cannot possibly fathom the eternal purposes that he has for these divinely appointed means of accomplishing his purposes in his redemptive plan for his creation and for his people. As I was meditating on the inevitability and the reality of suffering and trials, I couldn't help but consider the example of Job in the Old Testament. Now, I just want to give you um, a little bit of context before I read to you a couple of verses from Job chapter 2. But in the opening two chapters of the book of Job, which is many, many chapters long, but um, man, it picks up the pace very quickly. In the opening couple of chapters of Job, we're introduced to Job as a man of unparalleled, of unrivaled, of unequaled character and wealth. Uh, he, he is a man of God in the truest sense. Uh, God has prospered him in the greatest possible sense. And yet Satan, in an attempt not so much to put Job on trial, but to put God's own policies on trial, approaches God, the enemy approaches God, the adversary, and requests to test Job. And God grants him permission to test Job. And what happens is the adversary takes Job's property, takes Job's children. These are crushing, profound, the deepest, the most acute personal losses that we can possibly experience in life. And then as a cherry on top, Satan attacks and destroys Job's health. He, he lives a miserable, emotional, and physical condition. And it's so bad that in Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, we read this. Job's wife Looking on, observing his brutal condition, the nuclear fallout that he's experienced in life, his wife says these words to him. Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. In other words, your situation is so bad, husband, that you might as well just curse God because he couldn't really be there and you should just die. But the, the passage continues, verse 10. But he, Job, said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And he says this, church. He says, shall we receive good from God, but not also receive evil? And we're told in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You see, he understood that God is sovereign, that God is above all things, that God did not owe him anything. And that God's purposes are inscrutable and transcendent. I think I might do a mini-sermon on Job in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to delve super deep into this right now. But when we look into the book of Job, we see that God is unfathomably and inscrutably wise. The world is too complex for us as limited, finite humans to have all the information that we would need to evaluate why God does or allows what he does, but we do have enough to affirm that God is wise. And if we believe he is wise, then we can believe he is good and that he is just, even when we see and experience evils like this coronavirus.
perspective. God is in control. God is unfathomably wise. God is working redemptively, even now, even in the midst of human suffering. But next, we also need hope. We're facing an unprecedented global moment of crisis, perhaps the moment of crisis of our lifetime. Um, the world has literally stopped. Um, people in our world are hurting. They are in need. More people than we realize are probably paralyzed with uncertainty, are mired in fear, um, and not just in our community, but around the whole world. Um, it's very possible that this pandemic will get worse before it's, it gets better. Though, of course, um, we pray and we'll continue to pray that God shows mercy and that it gets better and not worse. But here's the thing. People need hope. In the midst of the chaos, people need good news. They need good news. You see, what this situation is demonstrating before our very eyes is the utter frailty of man's systems. It is revealing the fragility of all the worldly objects of man's hopes. All the things in his life to find peace in, in, safety in, confidence in. All the things that we look to in this life to build our lives upon are all being shaken. They're all being stopped. They're all being shown to be frail and fragile. Now I want to say something. It's a little bit scandalous, but I want you to stay with me. I think that in a way, what is going on is kind of exciting. Now, again, you might think that that's strange and maybe even irresponsible, but I want, you, I want to explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, the global reach and utter magnitude of this health crisis is exactly the kind of world-altering event that shakes people into asking the most important questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What does life ultimately mean? What is, what is it about? Uh, people's worlds are being rocked. Uh, many people are beginning to question their most basic assumptions and beliefs. And what, what does that afford us, church? What does it present us? It presents us with tremendous gospel opportunity. Please. So, that people need the gospel. What is often intimidating to us is our awareness that others around us are so firmly convinced that they don't need the gospel. As a consequence, we're often intimidated to communicate the gospel to them or we feel foolish or shy. But you see, this is just the kind of crisis to shake people up. Church, let's recognize something. Let's pause and remember something. We have we have been given and trusted with as stewards the best news in all of human history. And people need this good news all over the world. People in our neighborhoods, people on our streets, people in our cities, people in our states, people in our country, people around the world need this good news. And as the Bible says, 
How will they know if no one goes and tells them? We need to understand uh, contextually that um, a worst case scenario with coronavirus pales in comparison to facing the justice and wrath of God that sinners rightly deserve. And so, church, now is not the time for timidity. Now is not the time for silence. Now is the time to pursue gospel conversations, to seek out those whom God is drawing to himself through these present circumstances. Now is the time for us to be faithful in witness. As I said before, yes, we should and must be submitted to our authorities, a la Romans 13. Yes, we should love our neighbors. We should share our hearts and our stuff. Um, we should not only give generously to those around us, those who are in need, those who are hurting um, from our surplus. We shouldn't just give when we have a surplus of you know, toilet paper and hand sanitizer. We should give from our poverty. We should responsible, we should model responsible social distancing. Yes, we should protect our public witness as Christians. All these concerns that uh, we're rightly uh, focused on in this moment, we should be doing all these things. But, but here is the thing. None of those things individually or jointly are substitutes for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and calling sinners to repentance and faith to be reconciled to God through the work of his one unique son, Jesus. We need to be people of faith. We must not live in fear that God isn't saving people, but we must live with the hope that God is saving people, even right now, and especially right now in the midst of these circumstances. Pastor Andrew and I were having a conversation um, on Friday. <clears throat> and uh, in that conversation, we were reflecting on the reality uh, that times of crisis test our convictions. I want to say that again. Times of crisis test our convictions. But then in our conversation, we took that principle one step further. and We recognized that times of crisis not only test our convictions, times of crisis reveal our convictions. In other words, crisis reveals whether the convictions we say we have are actually the convictions we really have. Do we believe that our great big sovereign God is actually great and big and sovereign and in control or not? Do we believe that the good news of Jesus is actually good news or not? Do we actually love our neighbors such that we will give sacrificially and unconditionally with no expectation of return or reciprocity or not? Do we actually trust in the provision of God when our resources uh, shrink and are limited and our livelihoods are threatened or not? Do we actually believe that we as a church are a family that we can <clears throat> depend upon one another, that we can uh, be encouraged by one another, that we can stick together through this thing, even though we can't meet together in our building or not? You see, in times like this, we're reminded that it doesn't ultimately matter 
if we as a church have palatial, impressive, accommodating facilities, cutting edge technology, beautiful branding, impressive vision, all those things are important, but it doesn't ultimately matter if we have all those things. If we do not first as a family of believers united in and through the blood of Jesus Christ, his saving work, if we do not first and foremost have real faith and real convictions, common faith and common convictions. Brothers and sisters, we must be salt and light, and we must be salt and light now. Our culture needs it. Our world needs it. And even more, God has called us to be salt and light. Earlier, I referenced Jesus's farewell discourse in John's gospel. I want to return to that discourse for just a moment. Um, but whereas before I referenced the beginning of that discourse, I now want to reference the conclusion of it. You see, the last words that Jesus utters to his disciples before he offers his high priestly prayer to his father and then is summarily betrayed and handed over to be killed are these words. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples at the end of that parting discourse, he says, I have said these things to you, all these things I've said to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see that? Did you catch it? Jesus says, everything that I have just said to you was driven by this motivation and established on this truth, that in me, you may have what? Have peace. In who? In Jesus that in me you may have peace. And he goes on to acknowledge the inevitability of difficulty and pain and suffering and persecution and brokenness in this world. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. He doesn't say that by following him we'll be exempt from these things, that, that we will somehow be excused from the pains of this life. He says, you will have tribulation in this world. But then he says perhaps the most hopeful words in all of scripture. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, be encouraged. Have hope. I have overcome. Church, Hope Chapel, whatever happens, however this all plays out, we must cling to Jesus' words. We must rest in the peace that is anchored in his, to his victory over this world, over sin, over disease, and over death. John recorded Jesus' words in this upper room discourse. They are conveyed in John's gospel. John also recorded his vision of this Jesus returning victoriously once again, that return which we are still waiting for. Uh, the Jesus John writes of in Revelation 21, and I think that 
this Jesus and this vision bear rehearsing, not just in the midst of crisis, but especially in the midst of this crisis, because the hope that it brings needs to be re rehearsed amongst us as believers, but it needs to be shared with those who do not know him. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 7, John records this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and they're true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. And he will be my son. Church of death is a hope worth holding. That is hope sharing. That is the hope that our needs to hear, to hear from us. As I bring our time together this morning to conclusion, if you have looked at the notes on the live our website, you might have noticed uh, reference to a verse that I haven't even Reference yet Romans chapter 12, verse 12. It's very top of your notes. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans is certainly one of the most uh, robust and verbose expressions of the gospel in all of Paul's writings. It is rich and deep and majestic. Um, but there are a few major hinges or turning points in the letter. And, and when we study this letter closely, we really appreciate. Paul's strategic and literary and rhetorical genius. Um, the Spirit inspired him, and this is an amazing, an amazing, uh, amazing book of the Bible. But I want to draw our attention just ever so briefly to one of the most important transitions in the letter. Romans is 16 chapters long. The first 11 of those 16 chapters are essentially all about the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the power of the gospel? How does the gospel not only deliver us from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power in bondage of sin, and so on and so forth? Eleven chapters of gospel goodness, amazingly rich. Um, but then in chapter 12, Paul essentially asks the question, so what? How shall we then live? What does it all mean? How should our believing transform are behaving? How should our new life give way to new living? 
and roughly the remainder of the letter is devoted to Christian living. And I absolutely love the beginning of this section on Christian living, uh, chapter 12. And I want to conclude by reading uh, a part of this passage for us. And I want to call us as a church to adopt, to embrace one central verse uh, as our mission statement, um, as our purpose statement uh, in this time of crisis. And so I want to call us to memorize it together, to rehearse it with one another, um, you know, via chat, via text, via phone call, uh, and whatever mediums are, are appropriate in this time. I want to call us to put this uh, verse into practice, uh, both individually and corporately, as the family of Hope Chapel. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up uh, and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And I want to read to you, you can follow along with me, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil good. Now all of this is rooted, anchored in what Paul says in the first two verses of chapter 12. He makes an appeal. Uh, he, he calls for a response to the gospel, to what God has done in and through his son on our behalf. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, we are Christians. Therefore, we are living sacrifices. Just as Jesus was a living sacrifice, we too are called to be living sacrifices. And so how can we be such in this time of crisis? What will be our purpose as his people in this turbulent moment? I want to call your attention back to chapter 12, verse 20. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. What do we do, church, in a time like this? How do we conduct ourselves? What is our objective? What is our attitude? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant 
in prayer. We have the perspective to navigate this crisis. We have the hope to carry us through this crisis. Therefore, church, let us rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in